two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you, um, me, and welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And in continuing our series of movies from around the world, uh, today, this episode, we're calling This Woman's Work. And yes, that's named after the Kate Bush song. And no, we're not piggybacking off of Stranger Things. (laughs) But it is because the two movies that we're discussing today um, are both centered on women and also have women or women in the title. They are from Japan from 1960, though it was released in the U.S. in 1963, When a Woman Ascends the Stairs, directed by Mikio Naruse. And from Spain, from 1988, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, written and directed by Pedro Almodovar. Both of these directors were known for making movies about women throughout their careers, although they took radically different approaches to their subject matters most of the time. But as we've said before, you can like both. Also, both movies are about women who are wanting to get with the guy, but at the end, they don't. Again, handled in very different ways. And finally, and this is a personal note, both of these movies were the first movies I saw for each of these directors. Hmm. So I would have a special place in my heart for them, even if I didn't think they were brilliant, which I do think they're both brilliant. And we'll get to why as we discuss each film. But for now, Claude's going to give us the plot description for When a Woman Ascends the Stairs. Yes, we start with Keiko, whom everybody calls Mama. She is a young widow, uh, closing in on 30 years old, and she's the occasional narrator of this story. Keiko is a hostess at a bar in the the, uh, Ginza in Tokyo. And for those not in the know, the Ginza is a high-end shopping district that houses expensive boutiques, department stores, and lots of cocktail lounges. And she would be what you would probably picture in your head when you think of the word geisha. Uh, Keiko's contract, such as it is, is basically sold to another location, but she personally is responsible for the outstanding tabs from her customers. Now, Keiko's realizing she's starting to get a little bit older, and she starts to think about what her future is going to look like. And after a conversation with Komatsu, her new bar manager, she decides she would rather open her own bar rather than remarrying, and thereby dishonoring her late husband, to whose memory she is still quite devoted. Now, to accomplish this, she and Komatsu figure out about how much money it could take. In order to get that kind of money, however, she's going to have to secure some loans from some affluent patrons who frequent her business, but frankly, she's not having too much success with that. Meanwhile, Yuri, a former co-worker of hers, recently opened up her own bar nearby, and that took away a lot of Keiko's former customers. So as far as anyone knows, Yuri's doing quite well. One day, while Keiko is at lunch with Yuri... 
She reveals that she is deep in debt and she cannot afford to pay off her creditors. Yuri tells Keiko that she plans to fake a suicide to keep her creditors at bay. The next day, Keiko bumps into another colleague who tells her that Yuri has, in fact, actually died and that she either planned her death all along or she misjudged the amount of sleeping pills to take. When she gets to Yuri's home to pay her respects, she's rather startled to see Yuri's creditors coming by to collect the money she owed while her family is still in mourning. Keiko visits a fortune teller who tells her that opening up, owning a bar rather, is at least a couple of years away. Also, she's going to receive a proposal of marriage soon. Keiko goes back to work and meets with the businessman who sent his guy to Yuri's family. He says he would have lent her the money he, uh, that, that, he was, that he owed her, but Keiko calls him out on it publicly, shaming him for sending the debt collector. She runs to the back to vent to Komatsu, but he's not especially sympathetic. And moments after she leaves the room, Keiko begins vomiting blood. After she's diagnosed with an ulcer, she retreats to her family's home for over a month to recover. The owner of the bar where Keiko and Komatsu works comes by to visit, bearing turtle soup and a little bit of money. We learn here that Keiko's nephew was crippled by polio and needs surgery in order to walk again. The bar owner isn't pushing her to come back to hostessing just yet, but perhaps she could return to Tokyo and maybe help with collecting some of the bills? Keiko's family, it turns out, thinks that she's kind of flush with the cash, but of course she explains that she has to keep up appearances with an expensive apartment and nice kimonos and that, and she hates her job, but she knows that her family needs the money. Her brother is in deep because of a bad debt that he had been set up for, and they in fact need another infusion of cash. Keiko reluctantly agrees to give them the money, realizing that this will forestall any plan of hers to open her own bar. While she's away, one of Keiko's patrons, Mr. Goda, comes to her apartment to see her, but another co-worker, Junko, is there watching the apartment. She tries to offer him some hospitality, and maybe a little bit more, but what we see is she's kind of inept at it. After Keiko returns to her bar to work, she's approached by a drunken patron who says he's no longer in the black market. She rebuffs him and leaves for the evening. Outside, she bumps into Mr. Sakin, a businessman who we saw earlier when he stopped by her family's home to check up on her. At that time, the family, at Keiko's behest, pretended she wasn't home at the moment. At any rate, Sakin was coming to the bar to see her, but when he learns that she's leaving, he offers to drive her home. When they arrive, he proposes marriage to her. She's so startled that, he doesn't, that, that she doesn't answer. He takes that as a no, but he leaves graciously. Her brother turns up at her apartment shortly thereafter, and he's asking for more money. Apparently, it's a crucial time for her nephew, and if they operate now, he may be able to walk correctly again. She lashes out angrily at him, and as he leaves, Sakina comes back, saying he forgot to give her a gift that he had bought her. It's a bottle of Black Narcissus, a perfume she wears that he really likes. Keiko is suddenly overwhelmed by everything and breaks down crying. Shortly thereafter, it appears that Keiko has, in fact, accepted Sakina's proposal. On her next trip to the bar, Junko gives notice, give, telling Keiko that Mr. Goto is giving her money to open her own bar. In fact, it's the same bar that Keiko and Komatsu were talking about her purchasing, so maybe Junko wasn't so inept after all. Not long after that, Keiko gets a call from a woman looking for Mr. Sakuna. 
That woman turns out to be Mrs. Sakuna. Apparently, he has pulled this scam many times to the point where his wife is kind of used to it. But he's disappeared for several days and she was forced to call everyone in his address book. Keiko, go figure, is devastated by this news. The next time in the bar, she's becoming her own best customer and she drunkenly comes on to Mr. Fujisaki. That's a businessman who's interested in her. They spend the night together and while it's not clear at first that she's really consenting to sex with him, the next morning she says she doesn't regret it. Fujisaki does promise to give her some money, but he also tells her he's been transferred to Osaka for work and he cannot abandon his family. Komatsu comes in shortly after Fujisaki leaves and Keiko gets a stern lecture from him. He confesses his love to Keiko, but says he kept quiet out of respect for her reverence for her dead husband and her resolve to not sleep with other men. He asks Keiko to marry him and open a new bar together. However, she declined, saying that a marriage like that could not work because they know each other too well, and although she can't really bring herself to say it out loud, she's in love with the married Fujisaki. We learn through a conversation that Komatsu has with Junko that he has quit the bar where he worked with Keiko. Keiko meets with Mr. Fujisaki and his family shortly before they leave, identifying herself as a customer of his bank and a hostess at the bar. She offers gifts to Mrs. Fujisaki, which she accepts gracefully. And then we see Keiko once again ascending the stairs to work, pretending to be happy to see the clients. Okay, so let's talk about Mikio Naruse. We've talked on quite a few episodes about Akira Kurosawa, and we've mentioned that he, along with Kenji Mitsuguchi and Yasujiro Ozu, are the most famous Japanese directors from their quote-unquote classical cinema period, which is roughly akin to the, in time lengths and when it happened, um, to the studio era of Hollywood. And when I say most successful, I mean most well-known outside of Japan. Now, Mikio Naruse started out a little after... Mitsuguchi and Ozu, who were both making movies in the 1920s. He started in the 30s. And he worked right up to, almost up to his death in 1969. And he was, if not as prolific, maybe, as Ozu certainly was, just as well regarded in Japan for the movies that he made, but for some reason, he never broke out to the Western world the same way that Kurosawa, Mitsuguchi, and Ozu did, which is a shame, at least from the films of his that I've seen. And like Mitsuguchi and Ozu, and unlike Kurosawa, who's Almost his entire filmography is available either on DVD or to stream, or both. Um, a lot of Naruse's films, as also is true, unfortunately, with Mitsuguchi, are lost. Hmm. So there are not many to see. But from what I've seen of him, if I wouldn't quite place him in the same level as Kurosawa. He certainly is a very good director. 
Now, Kurosawa actually worked under him um, as an assistant during the 1930s at one point. And while he said that the job itself wasn't fulfilling because Naruse tended not to delegate things to his assistants, he did let like Naruse personally, and he learned a lot from him, and he admired him. Why I'm going to get to in a moment, but the more instructive comparison comparisons, excuse me, are to the other two folks, Mitsuguchi and Ozu. Like Mitsuguchi, Naruse's films tended to tended to be about the problems of women in society. Unlike Mitsuguchi, whose films were period pieces for the most part, Naruse's movies were all set in the present day. Also, while Mitsuguchi's movies about women were almost exclusively about geisha or prostitutes, Naruse made his movies about a variety of women. Now, this movie, of course, just happens to be about geisha or prostitutes, but he also made movies, for example, about shop owners, uh, shop clerks, um, secretaries, and what have you. Now, as far as Ozu goes, like like Ozu, at least in his sound films, Naruse did not move the camera around that much. Um, in his silent movies, or at least the ones that are available that I've seen, he would do the occasional zoom shot into a person's face when he wanted to emphasize a point. But in the sound movies, he didn't really move the camera around a lot. And most of his movies were shot on sets like Ozu. There are a couple of location shots in this movie, but mostly it is done on sets. Unlike Ozu, his camera angles weren't so rigid. You could always tell an Ozu movie when looking at it, even if you don't recognize the subject matter right away, because his camera is always pointed at an exact angle, like the cameraman would have to kneel on the floor when he's um, doing the shots, which made for uh, some discomfort for the camera operator, but that's another story. Whereas with Naruse, while he does shoot a lot of eye-level shots and doesn't shoot a lot of um, he doesn't shoot um, a lot of high-angle or low-angle shots. There were more of the latter than the former. He uses uh, medium shots a lot more than Ozu would. And his characters can be in motion, unlike um, in Ozu, where Ozu's characters are normally sitting down or in extreme cases, lying down through most of their movies. And the, this brings me to the, what Kurosawa said about him that he admired about Naruse. 
and that was his editing style. He said that Naruso's films uh, were so well edited that it seemed to be flowing together as if it was all one continuous shot, even though there were obviously a lot of cuts. It felt very seamless. It's no accident that the name of one of his movies, which I actually just rewatched before um, recording this, is called Flowing, because that's the feeling you get from at least all the movies of his that I've seen. And you especially get it from this movie, which is one of the reasons why I like it so much. Yeah, now you, you've raised a couple of interesting points here. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to come back to the editing briefly, but, but I think, let, let me go back to what you were saying about like a lot of static shots, very few camera motions, that kind of thing. And I have to wonder if it's a little bit of a holdover from the fact that this was a guy who basically got started in the industry during the silent era when everything was kind of presented in this almost like theatrical, like almost as though the camera is looking through the proscenium arch at a theatrical stage. And so the camera doesn't move and the people have to kind of move through the scenes and that kind of thing. And, and while you certainly later on, as the technology improves, you still kind of come back to the stuff that you get used to. And chances are like in those early films, you didn't see a lot of zooming, but you probably did see like the camera actually pushing in rather, because I'm not sure when the zoom lens you know, came into, came into play at that point. Um, so I, I just, it's, it's just a thought. I, I just wonder if that's the difference between, between, you know, these old school guys and then like the next generation of, of directors is just what they were used to doing earlier on in their career. So it's, you know, just, well, a, just a thought kind of experiment there. I mean, that's possible <clears throat> for, Naruse and mm -hmm. Ozu, but then on the other hand, uh, I don't know how many Mitsuguchi's films you've seen. He's famous for his tracking shots. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, that's why French um, critics in particular fell in love with him because of the way that he would move the camera. And he started out in the silent era. Oh, sure. And so, there, are, there are always going to be directors who can manage to break out of it and realize that, you know, there are ways of doing this. And I'm sure like half the world has seen that YouTube video, which was, I can't remember the title. It was a silent film where basically a camera moved its way through a room full of people. And basically the camera traveled over the tables through each couple before finally landing on the guy that it wanted to land on. And it turned out that somebody had come up with this clever way of basically mounting the camera from overhead and putting the track there. And so the camera was basically floating over the tables and the people just had to back out of the way just a little bit as the camera passed them by. So sure, there, there are going to be innovations of, of all kinds and some people are going to pick up on them and some people are just going to kind of stick with the stuff they know. But let me come back to the editing. Cause I think you're right. Like the editing was really, really good. The only place where I had a little bit of trouble with it. And I don't know if it's an editing or maybe there's something else here is toward the end of the film. Um, when Keiko has accepted the proposal and Junko gives her notice and Komatsu is quit and blah, 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 blah. And, then Keiko goes and meets with the family and gives them the gifts. And I'm like, 
how did all of this happen in the span of a few hours if this guy was supposed to be leaving the next day? And that was the only thing that I really had any problem with, like the overall flow of this story. For the most part, I had a good feeling for how everything went, even when you had that passage of about a month going by between her vomiting in the bar and her turning up at her family's house. You know, she says, well, it's been about a month. <laughs> she said, I, well, actually, she said four weeks. Um, and not only that, she said specifically about like the change of the year. So it was over like what we would call the Christmas holidays. Um, so that makes sense. You know, those last couple of scenes, time-wise, oh, I had a little bit of problem with the, uh, just just with the the presentation of that amount of time passing. I, I have to admit, I did not, mm-hmm. because this is in line with what were um, normally um, in a denigrating tone called the women's films of Hollywood in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And in those types of movies, you would see a lot of plot um, that would happen in a very what seemed to be a very short time span. And I'm thinking of things like... Um, you know, now Voyager mm-hmm. and Stella Dallas and movies like that, which would have a lot of plot crammed together. But this worked for me. Now, one of the ways this movie is different from those types of movies, of course, is that um, Naruse. Um, has his actors perform in a very naturalistic, subtle manner, mm-hmm. unlike those old uh, studio-era Hollywood movies where, you know, you've got Betty Davis and Barbara Stanwyck, and while they are capable of, ha- of acting subtly, more often than not, they'd go big. Not to say that they were going, that they were bad, acting when they were going big. It's just that they did it in a more heightened style than the people who are in this movie. And certainly uh, Tatsuo Nakadai, who we've talked about before, and I'm going to get to why in a moment, but he's the guy who plays the manager, Kanich Komatsu, yes. Um, He mentioned in an interview on the Criterion Edition DVD that I own of this that while Naruse was not exactly Mr. Communicative when it came to his actors, he always did want them to act in a more naturalistic manner and not in a melodramatic one. And that's one way that this distinguishes itself from the Hollywood movies is the acting style. It's very subtle, especially in the lead performance. And I'm going to get back to Hideko Takamine, who plays Kieko, in a little bit. But all of the acting here is pretty subtle. Yeah, Yeah, it absolutely is. Go ahead. Now, another way that this distinguishes itself from not only studio-era women's movies, but also movies that 
were quote unquote movie women's movies in Hollywood that were made after this, um, particularly starting in the late seventies and through the eighties and nineties. And that is, it avoids a trap that I found in some of those movies, which um, seem to be saying, well, you know, men are bastards, but it's a woman's duty to love them anyway. And I find that attitude, and I'm thinking of movies like How to Make an American Quilt and Waiting to Exhale and a few others that I can't think of right now, but I find that attitude incredibly retrograde. And I think Neruse, while he isn't explicitly feminist about the troubles that women have in society, like, say, Mitsuguchi was, who blamed all of a woman's troubles on um, men being bastards, even though ironically and sadly, in real life, he was not as uh, progressive towards women as um, you may have wanted. Um, There was a woman who acted for him who wanted to direct, and Mitsuguchi did everything he could to make sure that didn't happen, apparently. But anyway, um, Neruse's movies tend to be, for lack of a better word, more existential about women's struggles, whether it's the geisha trying to um, be self-sufficient, which is a failed struggle in this movie, or the shop owner trying to compete with um, compete with um, the bigger store as in another Neruse movie whose title is escaping me for a moment or for older geisha women who feel that um, life has passed them by but they still feel that they can attract men and haven't quite given up that illusion, as in the aptly titled Late Chrysanthemums, or the woman who is in love with a married man who won't leave his wife, which is not only true in this movie, but also true in my second favorite Neruse movie after this one, Floating Clouds. Or even in his last movie, um, Neruse's movie, that is, where a um, woman's husband was killed in a car accident. And even though a Scattered Clouds is the name of this one, um, even though she does find herself having feelings for ironically, for the man who accidentally killed her husband, she doesn't want to act on them because if she does, then that means she can't move on. You know, all of that is sort of the struggle of woman that he was trying to portray. Now, to be sure, not all direct, not all people, um, 
in America approved of women's stories that were about this type of story. And as a matter of fact, um, among the new wave of Japanese directors in the 60s who were reacting against the classical period of Japanese directors, uh, one of them, Shohei Imamura, who's responsible for such movies as Pigs and Battleships, uh, The Eel, and my favorite of his... Kobe Ame, also known as Black Rain, um, he has said, or he had said in his lifetime, that his women were more three dimensional than Naruse's and could fight for themselves, as opposed to what he saw as the passive woman of Naruse's movies. And while I can understand his point of view, I don't agree with it necessarily in that I don't think that just because the woman characters in his movies may be more accepting of their fates make them any less interesting. And certainly that's not true of this movie, at least for me. No, it's, it's, it's not. And, and <clears throat> I think it's, it's important to, to note that, that, you know, there is an element uh, in this film of all men are bastards, but it's just not explicitly spelled out. And I'm thinking specifically of the fact that we hear about several different women who are bar owners and all of them, all of them without fail, are struggling financially because the patrons are basically deadbeats. They're not paying their tabs on time. They have to. So somebody has to go out and chase down the money and they're getting kind of strung along by promises. So they're constantly deeply in debt and then the bars go under or they have to get sold off or something happens. So, you know, there, there is still a little bit of this financial reality that these women go through. So they're not quite giving you to you. And then also you get, you know, you know, um, uh, the 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 one guy who proposes to Keiko and turns out to be married besides. And, and so, you know, that one that's a little bit more explicit than everything else we have seen elsewhere in the film. So uh, I, I it's, it's interesting because this is a film where you're getting like a little bit of hope on Keiko's part. And at the same time, it's taking kind of like a cynical view toward the whole scene. And let me come, let me also go way back because something that came to mind is um, just, just a terminology kind of thing because you kind of equated geishas with prostitutes and that's not really what they're about. And Keiko herself mentions that in her narration is that basically the women view each other in different, for lack of a better word, casts. Okay, no, where there I is a there is a that. high end and there's a lower end, and and that there are women whom the other women, the other hostesses look down upon because they're going home with the customers. All right, so those those are the prostitutes. The others, not so much. But yeah, there there is definitely no, a difference there. I understand that. Uh, my point was saying that those geishas or prostitutes are the ones that Mitsuguchi. Um, devoted his films to almost mm. exclusively, where oh, in the Russe, okay. it's not quite the same. But getting back to the money part, this is a theme of Naruse's movies, 
that doesn't really come up with a lot uh, with uh, any of the other directors of uh, the classical period of Japanese cinema. You know, certainly not in Ozu's movies and um, not a lot in Kurosawa's movies, although it does come out does come up in a couple of movies like high and low, but mostly that's yeah. a class thing. And uh, Mitsuguchi, it doesn't really come up much either. And I mean, the characters that he focuses on, you know, it is a divide between rich and poor often, but it's not done with the same focus and intensity as in Naruse's movies, particularly in here, not just the fact that patrons, as you just mentioned, aren't paying off the geishas, but also the fact that Kiko, even though she's dreaming of owning the bar and becoming self-sufficient, she knows it's going to take a lot of work. And part of the reason why she gets so frustrated with her family is that, you know, they're always asking for money that she herself desperately needs. She's like the George Bailey of Japanese cinema. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't quite go (laughs) that far. But yeah, no, she does have a lot of obligations now. Another storyline that Naruse um, uses with this film that is a well-worn storyline, but he uses well anyway, is the uh, story of someone who's out of step with their times, which Keiko certainly is. Um, You know, it's not just the way that she acts or the fact that she won't go home with the customers. It's also the way that she dresses. And we should mention, Mm -hmm. by the way, that Takamun, in addition to playing the lead role here, also served as the movie's costume designer. Mm -hmm. But um, she almost exclusively wears kimonos, which is... uh, for those of you who don't know, a very traditional type of dress in Japan, both for men and women, although the ones who wear it in movies uh, most often tend to be women. And um, it's almost like, I guess the best way you describe it is it is a full-length dress, although it's a wraparound, right. almost like a combination of a coat and a dress. And there's a ribbon, a rather giant ribbon, as a matter of fact, that's tied around the waist to hold it together. And for some reason, there's all, I guess maybe to support the back Um, There's always or almost always some kind of pillow in the back uh, for when they sit down, I guess, to support themselves. Right. So the the wider ribbon, it's actually it's called the Koshihimo. Okay, it's a very wide hip hip ribbon. Okay, and it basically supports that other part, which is well, you got the obi, which is a of the bow 
that you typically see there, but it's it's much more complicated than what we would ordinarily think of as a bow. It's a very, very complex kind of knot, plus the pillow jobby. That all gets supported by the, the Koshihimo and the Obi. Right, but the point is, is the other geisha and even the prost even the ones who go home with the customers don't necessarily wear the kimono all the time. Right. Some of them don't wear it at all. So that's a nice subtle way of showing that Kieko is behind the times or out of step with these times. It's previous generation kind of kind of thing. These kids right. today with their flashy kimonos and like I mean literally that's that's really where she goes with it kind of you know, attitude-wise, anyway. Right. Now, um, speaking of Takamine, um, this was the sixth of 11 movies that she did with Naruse. Now, she um, has a tie to um, Kurosawa in the fact that she was the one who alerted him to Toshiro Mifune's presence and the fact that he was uh, someone to watch out for. And that led to Kurosawa going over to his audition and eventually led to their very close collaboration. But Takamine uh, deserves to be remembered for better than that. While she did movies with other directors... Um, including um, Kinoshita, whom she did arguably, well, whom she did her first uh, breakout movies for. Uh, Carmen Comes Home and um, the follow-up to that movie. And then also probably her fa most famous movie outside the movies she did with Naruse, 24 Eyes, where she played a school teacher. Um, but her best work, in my opinion, of what I've seen anyway, is for uh, Naruse. Hmm. And while in some other movies, such as Floating Clouds, um, she does, if not overact, at least um, play it a little bit bigger um, most of the time, as per Naruse's orders, she plays things very subtly. And um, that's especially true in this movie. You know, you, Carmen Falls in Love was the other film um, after Carmen Comes Home. Uh -huh. And especially when um, she's saying goodbye uh, to Fujisaki at the station. You know, her heart is breaking, but she doesn't show it to us, and certainly not to Fujisaki. And even in more um, heightened moments, such as when Komatsu declares that he's been in love with her, or even when she initially hears about Sakin being married. She plays all of that very subtly. You know, she's um, she embodies that lyric from uh, Charlie Chaplin's song, Smile. Smile, though your heart is breaking. 
and she, uh, Kiyoko does, and Takamin does that so well in this movie. Yeah, I mean, but that's also Keiko's job, you know, is, is to 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 basically, you know, you have to make the customer think that you're in love with them. I, I we, we literally hear this during the course of the film. It's like this is part of your job is to make them think that you're in love with them, and and no matter how you feel about it, and there's only a couple of times when she really breaks down on that and says like this guy's a jerk or when she's at her family's house and she's like, I hate my job. She really doesn't like doing what she's doing. And the only reason I'm doing it is because of you guys. And so, and, and, and once in a while we hear a little bit of that disdain for the job and for some of the people she works with and for, you know, in, in her narration, even right up to the very end when she says, Hey, I'm going to plaster on the smile and I'm going to just keep on keeping on right there at the last, the last scene of the film. Now, I understand that, that it's part of her job, but, you know, other actors would still try and um, play it um, big or Mm -hmm. I don't want to say overact, but um, go for a bigger effect. And Takamine doesn't. No, she does. She does it like she does it pretty subtly. Like, again, there's like a, a brief look in the eye. There might be a longer pause than strictly necessary. You know, that that kind of thing. Yeah, she she does definitely play it small. Now, we should mention that um, even though even though, as I said, Nuruse's films are much different than Kurosawa's, they actually, especially in this movie, uh, worked with some of the same people over the years. Mm-hmm. For example, the screenwriter of the movie, uh, Reizo Kikushima worked with Kurosawa on several movies, including uh, one that we talked about already, Yojim- or two that we talked about already, Yojimbo and High and uh, three actually, uh, Stray Dog, Yojimbo, and High and Low. He was one of the screenwriters with Kurosawa on all three of those movies. And there are also quite a few actors who appeared in Kurosawa's movies who also appeared in this movie. We already this is the fourth time we've seen Tatsuya Nakadai, is it not? That you and I have talked about him. Yes, Um, that he's one actor. But there's also the actor who plays Sakin Mm -hmm. is Daisuke Keito, who you may remember played the samurai who had fought alongside Kambe before in Seven Samurai and was his closest advisor on that movie. And Keito, although he's probably maybe um, best known to the Western world for his performance in that movie, in point of fact, he probably worked with Naruse more than he did Kurosawa. Although, to be sure, he worked with a lot of different directors. Uh, the biography of Kurosawa and Mufune that I have, that I might have mentioned when talking about Kuros- when we talked about Kurosawa's movies in previous episodes, The Emperor of the Wolf compares Kato to a... Um, character actor from the studio era in Hollywood, someone like Charles Coburn 
or Claude Rains, someone who was never going to get the lead of the movie, but would always pop up in supporting roles and always make the movie better by his presence. And then um, the actress who plays Yuri, Kiyoko Awaji, was in Stray Dog. She, you may recall, was the prostitute or um, stripper, yeah, go-go dancer, who was in love with the murderer that Tashir Mufune's character is trying to catch. And then there's also the actor who played Fujisaki, Masayuki Mori. Now, I mentioned before, he and Takamine also appeared together in Floating Clouds, but he plays the samurai in Rashomon, uh, the samurai who gets murdered. He plays the title character in Kurosawa's uh, flawed but interesting and severely cut adaptation of Dostoevsky's The Idiot, and he plays in what I would say is his best performance outside of this and Floating Clouds. He plays one of the bad guys in Kurosawa's highly underrated The Bad Sleep Well. Uh, But here he is, as I mentioned, very good working together with Takamine, um, letting you know um, just by his body language that if it wasn't for his station in life, he might actually go off with Kieko, but he can't, which leads, of course, to that memorable scene near the end, the train station goodbye. Mm-hmm. And um, there have been a lot of... Uh, famous train station goodbyes in movies. Arguably the most famous one was in the World War II weepy Since You Went Away between Jennifer Jones and Robert Walker that was hilariously spoofed an airplane. But uh, this one plays it, as I said, much more subtly than the scene in Since You Went Away. And Although it's not maybe as powerful, it does leave quite an impact at the end after the train does leave. And that's due to Naruse's direction, uh, the acting work by Takamine and Mori, the cinematography, which was by Masao Tamai, and the editing, which is my A.G. Oe, I guess is how you pronounce it. But all of them work together to make that a terrific scene. Yeah, it was really, really good. So here's the thing. If you have been watching the movies along with us, you know, and you see all these Japanese films and you're saying, this guy looks familiar, this person looks familiar. See, you're not a racist. It's not that they all look alike. You have seen them all before. <laughs> so good on you. Okay. And, you know, we should also just, it's a very short uh, scene that she gets is, is, um, is, is, um, I'm sorry, I just I just blanked out. Fujisaki's wife, uh, she doesn't she doesn't get much, but she actually kind of does a lot with it because she's in this position of having to be the gracious recipient of the gift and that kind of thing, and then interacting with the youngsters. I mean, she's on camera no more than just a couple of minutes, but she's there and she I think she does well. Haruko Togo is the name of the actress. Ah, okay. And yes, I would agree. I'd also argue that Sakin's wife, who's 
played by Noriko Hanma, also does a lot with just her one scene. Yes. Now, one last uh, thing that I want to mention before we wrap this up. Now, um, the title of the movie, When a Woman Ascends the Stairs, is from the fact that every night Kiyoko, when she's working, has to walk up the stairs to go to the bar to do her job. And while Naruse does show that shot a few times during the movie, he doesn't overdo it. And he places the selection of those shots well, which is another reason why the movie, I think, flows so well. Right. He's, he's kind of picking his moments to, to actually show her walking up the stairs. So we see it like I, I, at least three times, maybe four. But basically, there's some event going on for her. You know, well, first is the introduction, the, then when she returns to the bar after the after the ulcer, and then at the end of the film, there might be one other where there's just like some kind of event, and again, we watch her walking up the stairs. Yeah. All right. So do you have anything else that you want to add before we wrap this up? No, sir. I have exhausted my notes here. All right. So coming up immediately after this, we'll have part two of this episode where we talk about women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Yes, indeed. Right away in your podcast feed. So stick around. Stick around.